This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, and I'm Darren Rockman. This is a, another in our Best of series, where we have a look at some of the best podcasts that we've recorded over the last couple of years. This time, we're going to be looking at private banks and how high net worth individuals can best choose the private bank with, with whom they work and how to work well with them to the greatest benefit of the client. We spoke to Jeremy Teacher, who had really interesting insights after many years working in the industry. Enjoy. This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, brought to you by Goldrock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. Welcome, everybody, to the Definitely Uncertain Podcast. My name is Darren Rockman. And I am a partner with Goldrock Capital, the 21-year-old multifamily office, servicing high net worth families in Israel and around the world. And I am very pleased to welcome back onto the podcast, Jeremy Teacher. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, great to see you. I wish it was under uh, more entertaining circumstances, given uh, the penalty shootout last night. But perhaps yes. we should say less about that than the more. Yeah. Well, you and everybody in London uh, licking their wounds, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss and for Italy's win, but we will, as you say, uh, say very little about it. Uh, Jeremy, just to remind everybody, is the founder and managing director of JT Executive Consulting, a business he started in 2006, and he is an expert in financial services and the inner workings of private banks and other financial institutions. And we want to have a bit of a chat today about uh, private banks. Uh, last time we had Jeremy on the show, which is probably uh, last year, we were talking about COVID and the impact that COVID had on banking and banking relationships. Today, we're going to open up the conversation a little bit broader and talk about generally working with private banks and the types of things clients should be looking out for. But before we go into that, uh, this is our 50th podcast and um, quite amazing that we've actually made it there. So um, it was Jeremy's idea that we have a little chaim. Um, cheers. So um, cheers, everybody. We're down the hatch. Well done uh, for everybody for listening. Thank you very much for uh, being part of the show. Well done, Darren. You've created some uh, high-quality content that I've enjoyed. Um, most especially the other day, I, I fully enjoyed uh, What is a SPAC? Something ah. that's been written about extensively. Um, so thank you for sharing that and uh, a number of other conversations that I've really enjoyed listening to. Great. Well, thanks. You're very kind. Um, okay, I, I'm going to continue drinking this uh, through the through the show. Um, so let, let's go um, and, and give it a start. So let, let's talk about choosing a private bank. Um, very often, um, you know, high net worth clients uh, sign up to a private banking relationship. What are the types of things that they should be looking for and looking out for when they make that decision uh, to go with a, a private bank? I, mean, I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's a great question for a number of reasons, but predominantly because people actually don't go looking for a private bank, and yet for anything else in their lives, um, a car, um, even a, a bank account generally, you'd obviously go searching for it. Yet what seems to happen in the private banking space is you get found rather than you go looking. Um, why that is, uh, it's probably a conversation for another day, but I do find it interesting that it's usually you're found rather than you go hunting. Um, unless you've got a very specific need uh, that your family or your personal circumstances have driven. Um, but there are so many factors, uh, and a lot of them are, are relevant to the conversation today. Um, things that me and you have discussed previously um, offline, um, things, things, things such as fees 
obviously people really need to now look into the details of the fees. And although there's been things like MIFID 2, which is a regulation to make sure fees are more transparent, um, fees still are complex in terms of how they're broken down. And it's important that clients look at what they're going to be charged and when, um, both in the short, medium and long term, because often private banks try and sort of get people in on a, on a short term deal. Um, but in the longer term, it works out similar or even more expensive. Um, for me personally, I would point uh, people into the, some of the obvious things to look through. Um, historical performance. I think historical performance is intriguing to me. Um, and the reason I say that is how do you define historical performance? Um, and a bit like fees, these banks all present their information um, in lots of different ways. And it's important that prospective uh, clients look at the uh, when they're compa comparing, they look at the comparables carefully because often it's not apples with apples, it's apples with oranges, whether that be based on different timelines, whether that be comparing it to different factors or facets, whether that be comparing in the UK what we refer to as ARC, which is a combination of uh, different private banks' performances. Um, even with ARC, these banks are able to manipulate um, the data very subtly um, to make their performance look better than it is. So performance, but with a very big star alongside it to make sure that's the case. Um, other things that we've discussed with our clients regularly um, is things like your banker um, and what type of banker do you want? Do you want a, pro a proactive banker that's going to be on top of you all the time um, and show interest? Or do you want a banker that's just going to take you through that process? And some of that is really down to personal preference and also what you're looking to achieve from that type of relationship. And linked to that and something that me and you obviously have discussed online is what we refer to as jurisdiction. So different banks perform differently and trade different products um, and have different tax statuses in different jurisdictions. And it's important that depending on what the client is trying to achieve, that those jurisdictions are looked into very carefully. Most interesting from my perspective is we've run a number of projects in the Brexit space. And Brexit has meant that different banks have had to create jurisdictions in countries like Luxembourg and Spain. Previously, uh, they would have been able to tra trade out of the UK, but because of Brexit, they've had to move. And for example, not all their, not all their clients want to move to those jurisdictions. And therefore, they're either forced to move or forced to change bank. So that is interesting to think about. Um, um, and then finally, and, and probably the most entertaining, um, is what I call process in and out. It sounds easy. I'm going to go and join X bank. But trust me, um, as we'll discuss, I'm sure, a bit later on, um, the process of joining a bank is by no means easy. And they don't make it easy from a KYC or regulatory perspective. But probably even more entertaining is leaving a bank is not easy. It's not easy from a regulatory perspective transferring your assets and making sure you're not out of the market. And that's something that I urge people to really get advice on because you can leave and then suddenly find yourself out of the market um, just due to due process and regulation. So when you are going to make that decision to move across, I think it's really important that you take all of those facets um, as well as others into consideration. But I think the message from the question is shop around and A, write down what your criteria are, but then mark your criteria against the people that you're potentially analysing and discussing with. Well, there was a whole lot there. So uh, let's let's try and take these one at a time. Let, let's talk about onboarding process. So the onboarding process with banks is notoriously difficult. Certainly over the last five, maybe 10 years, it's gotten worse and worse. Um, you know, how do clients better navigate this process and the endless requests for documentation and information the banks uh, have these days? I mean, firstly, it's obviously a great question, and it's one that people don't think about when they're making that decision um, or they're being pitched to or sold to, because clearly the banker isn't coming and saying, come to us, we've got a really complicated onboarding process. <laughs> um, firstly, it's important to know that it's driven by regulation, 
and it's driven by um, AML, anti-money laundering, and KYC, know your client. Um, so that's, there's not a lot the bankers can do about that because they've got to tick these boxes. And especially in the UK, they've got to make sure they're compliant. I mean, my advice is twofold. I think it's one is have your information um, in reasonably good order. And I would obviously say that to anyone who's uh, dealing with uh, this type of situation. And the second one is, I think, pick your partners and your strategic advisors carefully, because if you have strategic advisors, you would hope that the strategic advisors would have that information to hand and therefore be able to share that with the bank on your behalf yeah. rather than you have to dig it out uh, appropriately. Yeah. Where it gets complicated well, we, is where I, there are I, different... I, I, must, I must say, we very often in, in starting this process with the bank, we will actually flag to the bank some of the issues which we think we can see coming up and try and clear them in advance of even signing the first document, simply because you don't want to spend a month trying to open an account only then to realize that there's a problem. No, absolutely. And I think that look, where it gets complicated is where there's multi-legal entities or there are multiple shareholders or stakeholders in a in legal entity. And for KYC and AML, you need all of those people and entities to sign up, stroke agree, stroke provide this information. And often people don't want to share that sort of information with a third party. And they are very worried about data protection. Um, and as we all know, in this day and age, it's very, very hard to protect data. Um, so people don't want that data flying around, especially in a COVID environment where it tends to be obviously over email um, and literally could just get fired here, there and everywhere, or it could be intercepted along the way. Right. So let's just talk about part of that on, onboarding process, obviously, is the pile of documentation that clients receive from the bank, sign here, sign here, sign page 12, sign page 27, sign page 45. Um, most clients, I think, just go ahead and blindly sign. Very few actually take the time to review the documents, have a lawyer review the documents. In your experience, to what extent are these documents negotiable and how important is it for clients actually to have a professional review documents, know what's inside and try and negotiate the terms? I mean, I think the first point is um, I'm no specialist to be able to tell people what to do, but um, we're dealing with uh, multi-millions of pounds here. So my advice has got to be to anyone is to absolutely um, get it reviewed by a, a professional because at the end of the day, no one wants to have a get out. And I think both me and you both have stories of where um, the, the bank maybe hasn't watertight something on fees or something on onboarding or something where or even I had recently one of the transfer of assets and you rely on the paperwork at the end of the day. And for some reason, and I think this is an intriguing concept, is people are very, very quick or happy to sign for one of two reasons. Either it's just laziness. It's this e email that keeps flicking into their inbox every day, sign, sign, sign. So eventually you just sign, but actually you don't know what you're signing. Or you've got the banker just saying to you, yeah, yeah, it's just a document. Just go away and sign it. But my response to the banker is, well, um, how do I know what's in there? You either need to walk me through it um, or you need to help me out to make sure I fully understand what's in there. So most recently, from a personal perspective, I had a form that needed uh, filling in. I didn't understand it. Um, and I made the banker arrange a call to walk me through line by line. They weren't happy about it. And actually, they didn't understand a lot about it themselves. So they had to go and do their own, <laughs> their the own due reason. diligence. That's the other reason they say science by time, because they don't know what's in it either. So I think it's really, really important. Now, in the one in 100 situation, you need to rely on the documents. Um, you do not want to be that guy or that girl who signed it and then didn't <laughs> didn't read the small print. Right. And obviously these papers are written um, to favor the bank rather than the customer. So the devil is in the detail, as they say. Right. Um, so in answer to your question, um, A, I think it's critical you get advice. B, it's critical you go through these documents because they need to be signed for a reason. 
And three, they absolutely are negotiable. But I think the negotiation is if you're not happy or you don't understand rather than just for the sake of it. So it's things like fees, it's things like timetables, it's things like closing an account and the things that would go with that, that I think you can and should negotiate, um, should that be in your mind. Okay, so let's pick up on fees. To what extent in your experience, and we've had experience in this as well, do you find that banks are open, or private banks are open, to negotiate fees? And, and, and to what extent are they transparent about what the fees are actually charging? And, and, and while you're answering, I'm going to have a whiskey because this one needs a whiskey. <laughs> um, I think that they've become more and more transparent and the regulation um, and also the push in the more competitive market has meant they've got to be more open. I think maybe 10 years ago, if me and you were having this conversation, we'd be falling off our chair, not through the whiskeys we've drunk, but by seeing what certain clients have been paying and not realizing because the fees were hidden in uh, product costs and other costs associated with it. Um, what is interesting is absolutely I'm seeing that these are negotiable. And you start, and they obviously with the classic line, they're not. But obviously their key thing right now is, is what they call AUM, assets under management. And if they feel they're going to have a 10, 20-year relationship with uh, this organization, entity, family, then it would be in their best interest to potentially take a hit on fees up front, but look at the long term. So my advice is absolutely to ask the question, um, you as a customer client are also allowed to make promises that you don't need to continue or deliver on in the future, i.e. if you perform to a certain level, I will deliver more funds to you and therefore you will make more money from a fees perspective. So my advice, as I'm sure you'd agree with me, Darren, is to absolutely ask the question um, because if you don't ask, you don't get. Sure. And I think you mentioned something really critical here, which is you have to understand what is driving the banker on the other side. He's running a business and he's got targets he has to meet. Sometimes their income targets, sometimes their AUM targets, asset under management targets. And if you can understand what's driving them, you can often use that as a way of understanding uh, how to get the best deal uh, for you and your family. So um, let me just talk to um, the, one of the other things which very often uh, comes up, which is uh, getting, getting hold of information. Um, Obviously, uh, the private banks are, are behind the sort of high street banks in terms of technology applications. Very often, a lot of the processes are still quite manual. Um, do you find that uh, private banks tend to have apps um, and, and good website interfaces? Um, how important do you think this is for clients when dealing with a private bank as opposed to maybe their commercial bank? Um, so I think what you're referring to is the digital revolution. Um, and the that digital revolution, cool. <laughs> that's what I call it. Um, the digital revolution, I think, has two parts, and let's split them very quickly. Um, it has the, uh, the client interface, um, which is, as you refer to, potentially an app, um, an, an iPhone, a web piece, but also the internal one, which ironically is, in my opinion, more important. And what do I mean by internal? By internal, I mean the digitization, i.e. turning in from paper into machine um, of processes. So, for example, the onboarding process, if we could make that into a much more seamless journey, which is what a lot of private banks are doing by digitalizing the process, by either making it seamless by pre-populating fields for you on your behalf or laying out documents that you could sign electronically, um, that makes the customer experience and journey much more efficient and effective. Um, so I think that that's part one. And I think private banks are getting much better at that and investing in that because they're realizing that customers, clients get frustrated with long, painful processes. And then the other side is an interesting one. I, I meet clients, customers, as I'm sure you do as well, um, who insist on looking at their portfolio every day. 
and therefore they need to have a tool or a device to go and do that or they want to see whether England losing the football is going to impact the FTSE 100 or not um, because they're very interested in things like that. And then you meet customers, clients who have no interest whatsoever and just want to be told in their annual review whether they're hitting targets or not. So I think that these banks are in a bit of a conundrum with do they invest and spend on snazzy um, apps that probably aren't going to actually make them more money, but they're going to have to keep up with the Joneses because other bigger banks are doing it? Or do they rely on their performance and, uh, and see where it gets to? Um, so I'm a bit on the fence there. Um, with some of my personal relationships, I check in regularly just because it's readily to hand. With others, I haven't even bothered registering on the app because I'm thinking, why do I even want this on my phone? I trust the organization. I trust the relationship. And therefore, I hope they'll be delivering. And I don't want to be someone who's checking and, and worrying about it on a regular basis. So it's a bit of an interesting one. I think it just depends on the, uh, the driver from a client perspective. And if, for example, it is a pension portfolio and it's got a 20 to 25 year lifespan, it's clearly not something you want to be checking up on a daily basis. Right. Okay. Um, one of the other things that we see as banks in general and even private banks have become more corporate is the turnover of staff and the rapid uh, movement of, you know, one day you're dealing with one person, you know, the next day you're dealing with somebody else, and then, you know, a month later, uh, it's someone else yet again, which, you know, it used to be different in the private banking world. You had your private banker, and they were around for 20 years, and, you know, uh, you had a relationship with Jim or Sally or whoever it was. Um, How, you know, there's nothing much that a client can do about a change of personnel, but are there, are there things that they can do in order to make that transition less painful um, as a client? You know, demands they can make on the bank. Firstly, can I just share with you why no one should ever move to London? Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, July, just, it's the summer and it's not very July pretty. July 12th, everybody. Summer in London. Uh, sorry, uh, but it's been important for people to realise, stay where you are and don't come to London. Um, look, I think it's an interesting question. Um, and it comes down to, again, um, but what banks are trying to achieve. So some banks are very what I call client sticky. So the, the client is not overly bothered about the banker because they're bought into the brand, they're bought into what the bank is trying to do. And other clients are very banker sticky and therefore they will move with the banker. And obviously when a banker moves, the first thing they're relying on is that their clients will go with them. But then there's that whole conversation around, well, how painful is the onboarding? Why should I move with you? What are you going to go and bring? And um, so I think it depends on, on those relationships. And it's interesting I think we spend a lot of time talking about um, performance and fees and things like that, but we don't really spend enough time talking about relationships. And at the end of the day, we are reliant on that banker to make our decisions for us on that daily basis because that's why we're paying those fees. So I think that it's very much relationship-driven. I've seen people move with their bankers on a regular occasion. I've seen other times where people are not that bothered. And I've seen times where banks haven't even told clients that they're banker has gone um, for a whole other raft of reasons. So I think it comes down to how sticky those relationships are. And when you throw COVID into the into the equation, it's interesting because I think at the beginning, when uh, video calls for bankers weren't so prevalent, it was how do you stay in touch with your clients who you were historically whining and dining? Suddenly you're having to arrange Zooms and uh, these bankers are, are reliant on their personality and their sales skills. Suddenly they're at home and having to do Zooms. Um, it's definitely changed that dynamic. Um, from a personal perspective, I have to say the people I've engaged with have been pretty good at staying in touch, um, and I've enjoyed that engagement, but I've heard from other people that it's maybe not been the same all the way through. Right. Okay. So, I, you know, that, that, that's been really uh, fascinating. I think that there are probably 
a, a number of lessons that have come up. Number one, never back England in a soccer game. Uh, number two, sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that. Um, number one, uh, you know, before you start a banking relationship, you should diligence, you should uh, look at comparators, and uh, you should always remember as a number two that things are negotiable, fees are negotiable, look out for, for, for the hidden stuff, look out for you know, sticker uh, sticker discounts which don't last uh, the the long the, the the length of the relationship. Understand what's driving your banker, and then help him uh, help you by uh, you know providing him what he needs in order to get you the best fee deal. And lastly, create create a criteria for yourself as to the things that are important to you, and make sure that what you're getting from your bank meets what's important to you, whether it's a personal relationship, whether it's a credit facility, uh, whether it's performance or, or, or something else. And, and, and that is really a good guide, I think, um, to the sort of whole private banking world. I mean, I have to say, I think customers, clients need to realise that these banks are trying to uh, create better processes. They're trying to make the, uh, the client journey, as we refer to it, much better. Um, yeah. They're trying to make the digital... Uh, Digitalization, as we talked about, um, better on both the internal and the external side. They're definitely trying to be much more regulatory compliant without making the uh, the customer's journey more more painful. So I think we need to give them some credit that they are investing. And obviously, through the projects that we're working on, we are absolutely seeing that investment um, that might not pay off immediately. So they're paying quite a lot of money to digitalize a process that only maybe over 10 years, they're going to see the, uh, the return on investment. I think the other thing to say, and I think it's important, is that People seem to think that, that challenging a private bank or a banker is a, a bad thing to do. Asking a question about why should I fill this in? Can we talk about fees? They think that it's a negative, but actually I think it's a positive because you're challenging the banker just like we all want to be challenged in our own work. Why shouldn't you challenge them? Yet people seem to get nervous or scared that it's, uh, it's non-negotiable. This isn't retail banking where it's a product off the shelf and therefore you can't challenge it because it's not worth challenging. This is a customized relationship and therefore product suite that should be challenged all the way through. And these guys are making fantastic money if they've yeah. done the right thing off the back of that. And I think the final point on fees, which we didn't talk about, is if the performance is as great as these banks um, are suggesting it might well be, which this year it has been, they're making even more money. And I think people forget that. Um, and therefore, because even more... It's generally a percentage of assets. So as the assets are growing, they're actually making more money. Exactly. And I think that that's not a point that's discussed enough up front with regard to fees. It's just sort of talked about as a percentage. But obviously, if they're doing as well as their sales pitch will say they're doing, then obviously everyone's a winner. Yeah. Apart yeah. from England. Apart from England. <laughs> there it is again. All right. Jeremy Teacher, thank you so, so much. It's once again been uh, hugely enlightening and interesting. And um, for all those people who've been uh, listening, uh, our regular listeners to this podcast, who have been through all 50 episodes, well done to you all. And for those of you who come and go, uh, we're always glad for your feedback. And thanks, everybody, for um, being a part of this. We will continue uh, after the summer. Uh, we're going to take a bit of a break now uh, for a few weeks while everybody tans themselves uh, on their summer holidays. And we'll be back after the summer with more episodes. So thanks again, Jeremy. Thank you for having me and congratulations on uh, 50. It's a great achievement. Thank you very much. And everybody, you be well and uh, goodbye.